From Olympic City and the home of Pikes Peak, this is the Automotive ADHD Show. All right, here we are rocking it on the Automotive ADHD Show. Heard around the world as a podcast and on the radio in Southern Colorado, 91.7 KLZR, voice of the Wet Mountain Valley. My name is Matt West, here to talk cars. You have, of course, tuned into the correct car show. And uh, I, I do have a loaded show in the works for you. We got a bunch of stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about the weirdest car trend that is coming from Thailand. This is a weird one. Also, a new rule was proposed in F1 that actually makes sense. That's uh, that's incredible. Can you believe that? So we're going to talk about that. And then we are also going to do a deep dive on a fairly divisive topic. And the question is, should you require a different driver's license for high-performance cars. Now, this the country of Australia thinks that you should. They think that you should. Now, I've put together some great research, a great segment for you um, to back up some of my opinions, which is that you shouldn't have a separate driver's license for that. And we're going to get to that, and we're going to go deep into that. So that's going to be cool. We're also going to play your car sounds right now here. So there we go. It's going to be a fun show. Now, before we get into that, uh, when I was posting last week's show, (laughs) this is funny. Okay. So last week I was talking about a 9,000 RPM Prius engine in a Toyota Echo track car, bonkers track build, really cool car. Uh, And you should listen to last week's show to hear more about that. But when I was writing the description while I was posting the show, putting the description in online on it, I, I, I ran into an interesting problem, which is what is the plural form of Prius? Um, and, and, and I probably spent too much time thinking about this. In fact, I know I did because <laughs> next thing I did was I looked it up. What's the plural form of Prius? Like if you have many Prius, Priuses, Prius, I, uh, Prius in, I, I don't know what, what is the plural form of it? And according to Toyota, this is straight from Toyota. They say the formal uh, plural form of Prius is, and are you ready for it? Prii. Prius? Prii? Prii? Prii. P-R-I-I. However you see fit to pronounce that. That is what they say the plural form of Prius is, if you have more than one Prius. So you're going to tell your friend, hey, did you see those Pri driving down the street? And they're going to go, what? What are you talking about? And then if you say Priuses, they're going to know exactly what you're talking about. But nope, Toyota, as you know, can do no wrong. And the correct form is Pri or Pri, either or. I don't know. Is Does that work? Like what, you know, when you have the plural form of moose and and, and Mies and Miesen and <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, it, that's a weird one. That's a weird one. I'm sorry, but what? Come on. Pri, Pri. I, I don't know. I don't know. But you know what? Now you know. And you can tell your friends, and they will be just as confused. So, uh, <laughs> oh, man. There you go. Now, I we're going to move through the first segment here pretty quick. We got a lot of stuff to talk about. And now I want to touch on this, which is a car trend coming from Thailand. And I am not the most versed on Thai car culture, Uh, Though a couple of my friends took a trip to Thailand, (laughs) without me, I should add, but they did. And they told me the um, 
the little uh, three-wheel motorcycle tuk-tuk, you know, things are really popular there. And people do crazy swaps on them and crazy wheels on these little things, which that's cool. But another part of Thai car culture that I was unaware of is the act of taking a mid-size truck and making it look like a full-size truck. This is interesting. So they take things like Ford Rangers and Toyota Hiluxes. And by the way, for for my American listeners, the uh, Toyota Hilux is the Toyota pickup outside of the United States. We de- They don't sell the Tacoma necessarily in all markets. The Tacoma is pretty much a American, a North American market vehicle. The Hilux is what they sell in Europe and South America and Africa and stuff like that. And it pretty much shares no relation to the Tacoma. It's, it's a pretty different truck. But that being said, this Thai car company, there's one of them that's known for this. It's called Icon Cars. They take Ford Rangers and Toyota Hiluxes and dress them up to look like they're, they're big brothers, they're full-size siblings. So they'll take a Ford Ranger and do extensive body work grafting on the front end or kind of custom building the front clip from a Ford F-250 Super Duty, uh, complete, by the way, with Super Duty badges. They're going to do different fenders, big fender arches to kind of make it look impressive and large and uh, similar headlights to the F-250 Super Duty. And it all looks sort of weird to me because it's... um, the proportions, like, yeah, if you look at it from the right angle, you can say, yeah, in a picture, at least, that looks like an F-250 Super Duty. Um, but the, the when you look closer, the proportions don't don't add up. It's, it's like a kid wearing bigger shoes than they're supposed to. It's like a little kid wearing big adult clown shoes. It's, it's a little odd. And though I will say their conversion of the Toyota Hilux to look more like the Toyota Tundra is a little more convincing. I think they did a really good job. Again, the proportions, a little weird. But if you squint and look at it dead on, you would be pretty hard-pressed to say that wasn't a Tundra. Now, obviously, that's in photos. If you were looking at it in person, you'd go, wow, that's a small Tundra. That's weird. Uh, But this brings me to an interesting point of, I think, car culture that is shared everywhere, not just Thailand. And this this does make sense in Thailand because, um, you know, they have smaller roads they've got a sea of motorcyclists weaving in every which way and all sorts of crazy stuff happening um yeah it doesn't make much sense to own a full-sized truck there not only that they can't get some of these full-size models there even if they wanted them and uh and that that brings me to the point of car culture that we all do this no matter where we are when it comes to cars we want what we can't have here in the United States, we want all the cool JDM sports cars that were never offered in the United States. And even if they were, no, we want the JDM trim of them. And likewise, there's folks in Japan who want American spec cars. It is the strangest thing. They go out of their way to replicate the American spec on a car that they have there, which is fascinating to me. Uh, also makes me think I should maybe trade some some USDM parts I have for some JDM parts. <laughs> maybe it would work to the right person. I don't know. But uh, what that, that it's just I think this exists everywhere. Um, uh, also, for example, uh, here in the United States, a lot of folks want Australian utes, the little small car pickup truck things. You know, think the uh, El Caminos and the the Ford Rancheros, except 
you know, the Australians didn't stop making those in the 70s when we did in the United States. They kept making them through the decades and make them even now, which is freaking cool, in my opinion. So, yeah, as car enthusiasts, I think we tend to gravitate towards the things that we can't have, whether or not those things actually live up to that expectation, whether or not that's the case, we still gravitate towards that. And that's exactly what's happening in Thailand. And it's a cool little insight into Thai car culture. Um, though I, I imagine if I was a American tourist visiting in Thailand and I saw one of these F-250 Super Duties, except miniaturized to the size of a Ford Ranger, I I don't know if I would fall for it. In fact, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't fall for it. Um, then again, I imagine many people in these markets that don't have these trucks at all might not actually know the difference because they've never seen uh, you know, a real F-250 Super Duty and how truly gargantuan the headlights and the grill are. They're, they're incredibly huge. Uh, they would be in for a big shock once they got to the uh, United States and say, whoa, they're bigger over here. But anyway, very interesting little part of, um, of car culture. Uh, I, would, I would love to do a trip to uh, Thailand or uh, honestly any other country outside of the United States that has a different car culture different things that they like in cars. I would love to see that. I would love to do an automotive ADHD, I don't know, field trip, we'll call it. That would be super cool. Maybe one day, maybe one day. That would be something really cool. Now, anyway, I got a lot of other stuff here to talk about. Really packed show. Coming up in the second segment, we're going to be talking about should you require a different driver's license for high horsepower cars? That's next. At the Speed Council, we understand that to go fast, you sometimes need to spend fast. As the inventor of hypersonic travel, the world's fastest cat, and instant noodles, we know what it takes. Money. Your contributions, bribes, and other monetary gifts keep the lights on at the Speed Council. However, we also know that giving back to our supporters is important, and now through the month of November, if you have contributed to the cause of speed, you're eligible to receive the Automotive ADHD keychain free of charge. New supporters who join through the end of November are also eligible. When you support the Speed Council, you also receive your favorite podcasts early, or as one might say, faster. For more information, visit thespeedcouncil.org, because if there's anything we're fast at, it's spending money. Oh yeah, here we are rocking it for the second segment of the Automotive ADHD Show. Matt West here talking cars. That car sound was sent in by Jillian. That was Jillian's 2017 Subaru WRX. Uh, and a nice cold start on it there too. Good cold start sound. Uh, Jillian sent in not only that car sound, but a fascinating story about their experience with um, Carvana. And uh, we're going to talk about that perhaps next week, perhaps next week. And that's going to be really cool. Now, Jillian, I want to thank you for sending those car sounds into the show. You, of course, have been entered for a chance to win the automotive ADHD keychain, the sticker and a $25 part store gift certificate. So that's really good stuff. Now, remember, if you want to send your car sounds into the show, you can do it. Facebook.com slash automotive ADHD. Check it out. I love playing them here on the podcast as well as on the radio. You get to know 
that your car sounds are not only heard around the world right here, but also on the radio, which is is pretty cool. I mean, come on. I, it's, it's weird for me to say it, but come on. That's pretty cool. You should, <laughs> you should definitely check that out. Now, uh, what I want to talk about here, and we're going to take the whole segment to talk about it, is an interesting thing. Now, the question was proposed uh, by one of the writers uh, at the drive, and at least just the question. Uh, they didn't state which position they would take on said question, but they brought it up. And hat tip to Aaron Cole from the drive, uh, who asks, should you need a special driver's license to drive higher horsepower cars? And what about bigger cars like SUVs? Now, here in the United States, we have the commercial driver's license that is very, in many cases, difficult to get. The testing requirements are pretty stringent, and that's what allows you to drive commercially and make money driving, particularly uh, in the realm of big rigs, you know, semi-trucks, buses, dump trucks, uh, things like that typically require a CDL. Uh, and I'm sure many other countries have their own equivalents of that uh, as well. Um, but what's interesting is Australia, the whole country, or one of the states in Australia, you could say, is proposing a law that would require a high horsepower driver's license for a certain threshold of, uh, uh, of, of power, of for, you know, a performance car. And this is, again, proven to be pretty divisive. At least looking into the comment section from that drive article, there's a lot of folks with some pretty pretty uh, big opinions on it. And, uh, and and you know what? I might be one of those people too, but I've done some research to back this up. Now, folks arguing for this say it will make the road safer. Again, likening it to CDL licenses or, well, that's, that's redundant, <laughs> CDLs for truck drivers. And I have to disagree with that. I do have to disagree with that. And I've got several reasons for it. Namely, um, driver training, especially in the United States, is terrible. It's resoundingly terrible. Um, I mean, the the threshold of getting a driver's license here in the United States is so low. It is and the, the sort of things they ask you to do on the test and the sort of written material is, again, it's it's staggering how many people can pass that. And some folks I know do take a couple of different tries to get through it for other reasons. Um, I, hey, I almost failed my driver's license test because of two really silly things. And well, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. I, you know, obviously I did pass, but you know, I, I don't know if I'd be here doing a show about cars if I didn't, but that said the driver training system here in the United States is just terrible. I did an entire show about this probably six months ago and I maintain my opinions. I stay consistent with my opinion that driver's ed here needs to be revamped. The, the driver's education system needs to be completely gone through from the ground up and restructured in such a way to create better drivers. That's the problem. It's too easy to get a driver's license, and they don't talk about fundamentals of car control. There's certain things you have to do to safely control a car, perhaps in extraneous situations, snow and rain and things like that. You may not push a car to those limits in the dry but even then, sometimes people do, and that doesn't just apply to performance cars, not at all. And um, now when I took my driver's license uh, test, uh, the extent of it was a multiple choice test. And then the driving portion of the test, uh, I remember my, my instructor deducted points from my final score for taking my hand off the steering wheel to shift the manual transmission. Nope, nope, rule says you, you take your hand off the wheel. That's a point gone. I'm like, yeah, but it's a manual. I have to. What am I supposed to shift with my head? 
I, I'm just saying, doesn't matter. I got points knocked off for that, and I recall I got points knocked off for not yielding to pedestrians that were actually about 20 yards from the crosswalk. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But that said, uh, some states like Georgia even removed, uh, they even removed their requirement to have a physical instructor in the car when you do the driving test. Uh, now, they have, you have the option for a physical instructor or you can do it over Zoom, a driving test over Zoom. That doesn't give the instructor, I think, any notion of, you know, braking, you know, any delicacy with the braking and throttle input and actual control of the vehicle. That doesn't do much for that. But that's it. That, that's the thing. Here in the United States, most places, most states you can be in, the driving test consists of, you know, drive forward, go onto the road, make a right turn, make one merge, go around the block, yield at the intersection, pull back into the parking lot. I mean, the whole notion of even parallel parking, that wasn't on my driver's test. I'll tell you that much. It wasn't. So that's the problem, is that driving is a high-skill thing, in my opinion. You are operating a vehicle at a pretty substantial speed that weighs a lot. And there's a lot of dynamics with how vehicle suspension and things like that work. You've got weight transfer. You've got track, the whole dynamics of traction, turning, braking, all of the above. And one of the things that's interesting is other countries... Uh, like Germany, for instance, has a significantly higher threshold to their their training when it comes to driver's education. Uh, and obviously, they're famous for having unregulated sections of the Autobahn. Yet, despite, you know, unregulated sections of speed uh, or just the speed limit rather is unregulated. Despite that, they have fewer traffic fatalities uh, than many other countries. Then, for instance, the United States, which is interesting to me because that that shows the quality of instruction, not even the quality of instruction, just the quality of the questions on the test and what the what the, you know, ride along testing person is going to look at when you uh, when you're doing the actual test. You know, look, look at it this way. The the driver's test here when I did mine, I mean, it was terrible. It was it, just the, the stuff in the driver's handbook. It was so thin. It's just counter steer. Do this. Well, that makes that's meaningless when you read it. Right. Like they don't go into any of these concepts of vehicle dynamics and where this gets to be interesting is when you have modern economy cars now that make more horsepower than sports cars did of decades prior i mean your modern economy car is just as fast is capable of just as high speeds as many older sports cars my s2000 for example it's only 240 horsepower it's it's not a lot there's a dozen uh, crossovers and economy hatchbacks on the market that that make that much power, if not more in some cases. Uh, plenty of SUVs who do that as well. And granted, it's not all about power. It's about balance. It's about power to weight ratio. It's a number of things. But the fact is cars have gotten more powerful. Meanwhile, distracted drivers have increased. Cell phones, screens, all of the above have definitely been on the rise. There's no disputing that. And here's one of the counter arguments against saying, well, we, you know, they, the counter argument for increasing the requirement for drivers across the board, not just for, you know, sports car drivers is, well, I just have a basic cheap car and I don't need to take a heavier test because it's I don't drive a performance vehicle. Well, the fact is that any basic commuter car can it still applies the same laws of physics as a sports car. The laws of physics apply equally to all of these vehicles and a basic commuter car 
is going to behave much like a high-performance car would if you, say, drive in the snow, if you drive in the rain, inclement weather. Um, your traction has been reduced, and the whole dynamics of weight transfer, braking, and all the traction you have available for uh, you know, accelerating, braking, and turning, that all changes dynamically with, say, bad weather. So understanding those principles, whether or not you have a high-performance vehicle is important because a high-performance vehicle is going to drive, you know, sliding around on dry asphalt, much like a low-power car is going to do in bad weather. And uh, here, in, here in Colorado, I can tell you, we got a lot of out-of-state people who move here. It's really obvious in the winter who's out-of-state. I'll say that much. It's very obvious very. Uh, and, and, you know, that's something I think that is totally preventable. Uh, so yeah, I think, you know, this whole argument, should we have, um, you know, performance car licenses versus regular car licenses? Um, no, I, I don't think so. I think we should raise the standard across the board. Now that's not saying we need a full high performance track day, driving experience, driving instructor, um, for every single road driver, but we need to increase the standards it's in some level, you know, it doesn't have to be the extent of a professional, you know, high performance driving school, but including at least an intro into some of those concepts and maybe time around a skid pad in, you know, in a uh, in another vehicle or something like that, just to give people a sense of what it's like, I think would be really important. And, you know, that's uh, I, I think we should moral of the story. I think if we raise the standard, it should be raised universally that is just absolutely the fact in in my opinion now i'm going to go into that that was a long explanation there but there are also uh some other reasons why i would oppose this same sort of thing which is most major crashes that you run into usually aren't you know high-end sports cars sure a pileup of lamborghinis and porsches and ferraris that's going to make some headlines people are going to notice that but that said most crashes are in everyday cars which are not high performance cars and uh, a lot of times and this is I'm I'm speaking from personal experience here you know how how many times have you been driving down the freeway you know maybe a little later at night you know there's a little bit of traffic and then there's this one guy screaming down the freeway weaving between lanes in I don't know a 2004 Nissan Maxima with like 16 colors of mismatched bodywork clapped out tires clapped out suspension doing you know 100 miles an hour and that kind of stuff, that is actually what causes crashes. I mean, you're exceeding the mechanical limits of that vehicle, which have also been lowered due to the uh, poor repair of it, the poor state of its condition. And that, that isn't safe. A absolutely not. Um, you know, safe in a performance vehicle that's mechanically designed to handle speeds like that is, is a lot different. You know, seeing how a vehicle operates safely at high speed, if it's designed to operate at high speed, because that means it's designed to turn at high speed, it's also designed to stop at high speed. Um, those are all things that, you know, if you were to do this, I think you would need to take into account. There was uh, one comment on the original article of this I saw, uh, which, which I thought was uh, fantastic, by the way, um, which, this is funny, um, the commenter says, I would be all for this as long as it includes the legal ability to drive faster than other cars due to having a shorter stopping distance, better road handling, and better training than the average driver. That's that's how that's what it would take for them to support a higher performance, um, you know, you know, driver's license. And uh, yeah, I I would 
I would agree with that to an extent. You know, that makes the point that, well, if you're going to require me to have this special license to operate a fast car, well, I should be able to operate the fast car quickly then, shouldn't I? The same laws shouldn't necessarily apply to you. I think that's a very valid argument, at least uh, in that case. Now, also, those proponents for this whole idea of having a performance driver's license also say that we should include heavier vehicles and SUVs. And, uh, for example, the Ford F-150 into this whole thing because they're big and they're heavy and and uh, they're not the same as your, you know, Toyota Yaris, which is true. That said, though, the Ford F-150 is the best selling vehicle in America. That's according to Edmunds.com, by the way. And literally tens of millions of people who own Ford F-150s would all need to get the performance license because they have a big pickup truck. And again, further reinforcing my point, which is just raise the standard across the board. Just just make that the standard. I mean, who could honestly say that learning the dynamics of vehicle control is a bad thing? No, I don't want to know how to drive my car. I only have to drive it every day to get work. But no, I really don't want to know how to drive it. Um, if you were presented with the option to learn that, I think you would take it. And uh, and I'm not saying that everybody needs to be a pro level drifter, not by any means. But again, just understanding fundamentals is really important. And um, now one argument um, is that, you know, well, you know, the DMV is underfunded, you know, and and they don't have the funding to increase the requirements for driver's licenses and the testing requirements. Well, maybe they are currently underfunded in many states, but the, you could argue they shouldn't be because that's a safety issue at that point. It's the fact is that our entire society is built up of roads in which we travel in cars. They're such an integral thing to our, our daily lives that you could argue that that shouldn't be a problem. Funding, at least in this case, shouldn't be a problem to have a higher standard of driving and safer driving at the end of the day. It really shouldn't be. Now, I'm not for, you know, big government and funding everything, but at least, you know, making it so you have better standards for people to learn. You know, the 16-year-old daughter who's first learning to uh, learning how to drive a car, yeah, it would be great. I'm sure any parent would say, yeah, let's increase the requirements because I want to make sure my daughter is as safe as possible. Now, obviously, you do have an open market solution to this. You do have third-party driving schools um, that parents oftentimes take their kids to to learn a little bit more about driving. That being said, those are not the standard. Those absolutely are not the standard. But it is a good, good solution to that. And uh, the whole funding thing, that's a political problem. If we're talking about safety and we're talking about the fact that we use the roads every day, pretty much everybody uses them, there should be a little more thought and effort put into, I think, what we make our standards out to be. Um, and uh, so, and like, for example, here, I was just pulling some stats up that 87% of daily trips that people take are taken in cars. This is from the Bureau of Transportation Statistics. Um, and uh, 91% of people commuting to work in the United States, use personal vehicles, which is cars or motorcycles, anything vehicle that you own and that you are licensed to operate. So basically anything that isn't public transportation. And uh, that boils down to 1.1 billion trips a day for every person um, in the United States via, you know, that, that that's, that's how many trips total we take. And of that, 91% of those are on cars and motorcycles. So, yeah, is that something we should fund? Is having a better 
you know, a better set of guidelines and how we train drivers? I think so. I genuinely think so. And I honestly don't think that it would have to be at the cost of the taxpayers. I'm sure the money's there, just not being used in that fashion. Now, that said, um, enforcing this whole idea of, you know, extra high performance driver's licenses would also be difficult because, you know, I, I mean, enforcing it would be next to impossible, honestly, not just difficult, because how do you classify it? OK, where do you make the cutoff for horsepower versus weight? Um, what about front wheel drive, rear wheel drive, all wheel drive? Those are all going to handle dynamically differently. And should that be a factor? Um, uh, and, and how would you regulate it for folks like myself and perhaps you who modify your cars, who do nutty boosted engine swaps into terrible old cars? Um, you know, on paper, it might be a 1980s Volvo, but right now it makes 700 horsepower on nitrous. Uh, hey, shout out to Devin. He, uh, he knows who he is. <laughs> his, his car sounds have been on the show before. Um, but yeah, how would you even go about that? How, okay. So would you have to then have the state do state mandated dyno tests to, you know, okay, you've got an old car on paper. It makes a 80 horsepower, but we don't trust you. So we're going to do a state mandated dyno test. Okay. So that might actually be kind of cool. Cause then I wouldn't have to pay a dyno shop to, uh, to tune my car, but, <laughs> but no, I, I, I don't think that would work. It would never work. They would come back to the budgetary thing. Well, we don't have the money to do that. And, uh, so yeah, the logistics of doing this don't make sense at all. Not in the slightest. Um, and when you consider that, you know, a lot of high horsepower sedans and other things are pretty benign, pretty unassuming, you know, think, uh, you know, even like a, a Charger Hellcat. Okay. A Charger Hellcat, pretty understated with nice set of wheels, no crazy graphics. You know, is is a police officer going to know immediately that, yeah, this is uh, this is a high horsepower car by looking at it? Probably not. A lot of high-end BMWs, again, are really understated. Well, not the new ones. The Gorillas, I don't know. But, you know, a lot of sedans and things like that are considered high performance. I think, again, the, further reinforcing my point, which is just make the standards better universally, because regulating that on a smaller level would be ridiculously hard. And, you know, I'm not saying by increasing the standards that we preclude anyone from having a driver's license or we make it more expensive to get it. Not at all. I'm just saying that the instruction that the state provides, again, is just woefully insufficient for, you know, how to drive a car, you know, just improve the instructional material and the testing, and then you're good to go. And then you'll have better trained drivers in my opinion. And now anyway, without getting into that too hard and too far, um, my final reason for this is, you know, for saying that I disagree with uh, you know, advanced driver's licenses for, you know, high performance cars and SUVs. You know, the final reason for that is because speed isn't the problem anyway. It just isn't. Um, and I, I showed some statistics on a previous show. You might have listened to it a few months back about speed and how that relates to states right now wanting to require speed limiters be fitted to all new production cars. Certain states, <laughs> New York. Uh, you know, they knew they, they know who they are, uh, you know, in so what what we have here is an interesting set of statistics. And again, you may remember this. This may sound familiar, but the according to the NHTSA, the some of the reasons for crashes and they boiled them down to a bunch of different reasons, um, which was, for instance, um, loss of vehicle control. And then they broke that down into different sub reasons, which was traveling too fast in their study, in their analysis of a number of crashes 
And this data is from 2005 to 2007 that they cited. Again, hey, it's a, it's a government study. It's, <laughs> they're not using the most up-to-date stuff, but I don't think that's important because it illustrates the same point. In this sense, cars haven't necessarily changed all that much. In fact, distractions have increased more than anything. Um, but that said, traveling too fast accounted for 195 crashes within their study period, within that study window. That was 195 crashes. Um, now, here's the interesting thing. Turning or crossing at an intersection was listed as the number one cause with 2,185 crashes. So if speed is such a problem, then why aren't we also banning intersections? Intersections in general, left-hand turns, right-hand turns, traveling through an intersection, doesn't matter. Ban intersections because clearly they are the cause of uh, confusion at intersections is the cause of more crashes than traveling too fast for the conditions. I, and on, and a, on a factor of many times, 195 versus 2,185 within the study window. Like, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, it makes for a compelling argument and I feel like the talk lately has been speeding is the problem. Speeding is the problem. And then you see posts on the news and, you know, stories in media about, you know, Lamborghini crashes. We had one just in Denver up the road for me a couple weeks ago. Uh, hit the news. It was a couple of Lamborghinis uh, traveling at pretty high rate, of, a pretty high rate of speed, like really fast. And they managed to crash into a business and wrap one of them around a light pole. And miraculously, no one was actually killed, which is good. Uh, but things like that are high profile because the media says, wow, Lamborghinis crashed. OK, let's go cover that versus the literally hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of crashes daily that happen at high rates of speed, perhaps, too, but not with um, not with supercars. So obviously the whole performance car thing, I think gets a little bit more attention just out of the nature of, of what it is. And the fact, too, is that you have street takeovers and car meets and everybody's got a cell phone in the air videoing the guy doing donuts in the middle of an intersection that they've uh, illegally blocked off. And then he crashes into the crowd. You know, maybe it's a Mustang. You know, maybe the, maybe the Mustang, you know, crashes into the crowd. They, they might have a reputation for doing that. But again, they only have that reputation, perhaps... Well, maybe there's an exception for Mustang drivers. They're in a they're in a special place, right? Hey, I, I could say it. I used to own a Mustang once. I and I survived. I miraculously. But that being said, um, at these car meets, at these things like that, everyone's taking video. So I think you get an oversaturation in the media and online of performance cars doing bad things, and then everyone says performance cars are bad. You need a license, a special one to drive that, and it's just. When you actually look at the statistics and when you look at the numbers, like when you look at this study from the NHTSA, um, it just doesn't make sense. The numbers don't add up. It's purely, you know, I'm not going to say dangerous crashes don't happen. I'm not going to say people don't get killed. And it is tragic when they do. But the perception of it is that it's happening more often than it is. And I would definitely agree that the perception is that it is happening more often when it's not really happening that way. So... Yeah, there, there you go. I rest my case. America sucks at driving, and I think we could do relatively little and improve it. I think there's there are genuine improvements to be made to our driver's ed system that wouldn't cost taxpayers any more money, that would just improve the literature that is already there and improve the requirements during the driver's test. That is... That is all I think. You know, obviously there's maybe some more stuff. I mean, we could go like full Norway and require everyone to be like a Norwegian, uh, you know, rallycross driver. 
to get a driver's license, which would honestly be pretty cool. But I can't imagine very many grandmothers and elderly people would do that. Although if they, I'm sure there are some like grandma is a rally cross driver. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just, <laughs> there's some grandmas out there who drive like a bat out of hell. I'll say that. But uh, yeah, I'm not saying we we go to that high of a standard, but increasing the standards a little bit would definitely, I think, save lives and also negate this entire push for speed limiters. You know, more, you know, I talked about on the show how New York is wanting to implement that. Uh, and other states now are talking about it, too, because guess what? One of them does it or is at least talking about it. Again, it's not been passed there, but at least one of them starts talking about it. And then other people get that idea and then other people because I, they're, they are fed up. A lot of people are fed up with, you know, seeing a lot of these crashes and seeing videos from these car meets. But again, I think the I think the coverage on that is a little disproportionate. Um, so and, and also just as a side note, um, what about actually getting like high performance track day driving instruction, like proper performance driving training. And then the fact is you can get that. And then your insurance company doesn't give you a discount for that. That is a true crime, by the way. I know there's probably a couple of insurance companies that do offer that in certain cases, but um, yeah, if you go out of your way to get true high performance driver training, like if you go out of your way to do that, like think Bob Bondurant racing school and all, all the other ones out there, Come on, you should get a discount on your insurance. That's a crime that you don't, just in my opinion. So anyway, um, yeah, there you go. There you go. Those are my thoughts. I do realize, I do realize that in some ways I am preaching to the choir just a little bit. You know these things. I know these things. But if you have a friend who maybe doesn't, who needs some convincing, maybe point them towards this podcast. Now, anyway, coming up, we're going to talk about a neat idea in F1. It's surprising, by the way. That's next. Did you know there's a rare but serious condition affecting one out of every million? Most are born with it, and despite decades of research, doctors struggle to find a cure. The truth is, thousands of people simply don't know what cars are. For those affected, things are grim, but recent developments show promising success. New clinical trials using breakthrough audio technology have shown a 69% improvement in patients with the most severe symptoms. Treatments vary, but one day we may see a cure. More information is available at ThrottleWarrior.com. Oh yeah, here we are, rocking it on the Automotive ADHD show for the third half. Those car sounds were sent in by Aaron last week. That's his 1995 Nissan 240SX, ripping some mad wedding donuts. And uh, I'm playing that again because I think those were such great wedding donuts that those deserved a second play on the show. <laughs> those deserved an encore appearance on the show. I love that. And uh, yeah, I, I maintain my opinion from last week, which is if you're not doing donuts during, before, or after your wedding... Are you really getting married? Think about that. So that is very cool. Um, now, on the way here, we got some we got some really cool stuff, which is F1. F1, I have I've been pretty critical of F1. I, I, I have. And uh, <laughs> and it's been for good reason, though. It has been for good reason, because, you know, things like, uh, you know, disqualifying drivers because the stickers were a wrong color. The number stickers weren't an approved color. on the Yeah, that, that stuff happens. And that is needless bureaucracy 
and totally nuts. That has nothing to do with racing. That has absolutely nothing to do with racing in no way, shape, or form. And and I do feel like F1, uh, the FIA can be a little bit, they, they can be a little rule heavy for only the sake of having rules and nothing else. I, I do maintain that. But here is a neat idea um, that, that, that may actually make sense. Uh, that could be a rule change for F1. And, and I don't always talk about racing, but sometimes, you know, I try, I try my best to tune into F1, even despite the weird FIA stuff. And, uh, and this, this happened um, last week at uh, the um, uh, Japan GP at Suzuka. And, uh, and give this a listen. This is just pure chaos happening on the track. Check this out. Just saw at the bottom of your screen Sebastian Vettel off in the gravel. This is what happened to Sebastian Vettel. Saw him just edging towards the grass and getting a bit squirrely. He can barely see where he's meant to be breaking and he makes contact, doesn't he? I got hit by Alonso. Really bad, really bad. Uh, oh my god. I don't know, I got, I got something stuck I can't see in front of me. He could barely see a few feet in front yeah. of him. Okay, so what you heard there was chaos, essentially. It was it was uh, people spitting out, people crashing into each other, whole lot of crashing going on because it was raining at Suzuka Circuit in Japan. It was raining very hard, and uh, they had major issues with not only traction but also visibility, among other things. There were there were a lot of issues with that that have resulted in several crashes. Um, and, uh, and and this brought up an interesting question, which is when you have major rain or adverse conditions, who gets to decide when it's unsafe to race? And traditionally, you have a car that runs, you know, in front of the cars, uh, the, the, you know, the actual race cars, you have the safety car, which is usually more of a road going car. Um, and uh, in this case, uh, Mercedes AMG GT 63. Um, and that's more of a road-going car that has probably more road-going tires, which are uh, designed to handle water a little better. Now, yes, I understand the existence of rain tires and intermediate tires and stuff exists in F1. But the person who makes the call right now on whether or not it's safe to race is the safety car. And he's not driving an F1 race car. And this proposal, after the kind of disaster that was a number of the crashes that happened during the race in Japan. Um, and this this came from uh, the Grand Prix Drivers Association chairman. His name is Alex Wurz. He says, quote, on this lap, the drivers would all see the con- what the conditions were like, and we could have 20 opinions of the 20 drivers who put their lives at risk. And then it's a much more informed decision for the FIA and the drivers. What he is talking about, this lap that he is talking about, is having a safety lap done Not by the safety car, but by the drivers themselves. Isn't that an incredible thought? The guys driving on the track would be the guys saying whether or not it's safe. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thought. Perhaps a piece of common sense uh, coming from F1, a rare piece of common sense coming from F1. And I think this is a good thing. Now, you could argue that the people racing, you know, the guys racing would get too competitive and they would say, yeah, we're good to race anyway, even if we're not. And then you'd have more crashes. Crashes are a fact of life when you're racing. But um, the again, one thankful thing of all the safety nonsense you could say in F1 is deaths in F1 have drastically reduced, which 
having, you know, dead drivers means you're not racing. So, you know, you want to keep your drivers alive, obviously. But that said, um, you know, having those guys, you know, be the determining call, you could say, oh, they're going to get too competitive. They're going to race when they shouldn't. I don't necessarily think that's the case because the drivers also understand the consequences of crashing and going overboard. Their team management understands those consequences and coaches the drivers very well to understand that. And crashing your F1 car is a pretty expensive thing to happen, and it could put you out of the race, and it could put you out of the running for other things to come down the road. So I don't necessarily think that would happen. That's maybe one major opposition to it that I don't think makes much sense. And uh, having the race car drivers actually feel it out in their actual race car makes a lot of sense because that's the tires they're going to be using. That's the car. That's the suspension setup. That also gives them time to relay some of this information back to the pits and say, well, we should really go with these tires and maybe these suspension settings. Let's adjust it a little bit before we get racing and then discover too late and just crash. I think that's again, a rare piece of common sense. Now what this would require is a rule change through the FIA, which I don't know, man. Good luck with that. Good, <laughs> Good luck with that. Oh, the FIA does love their rules, don't they? Um, they are the same people responsible for, you know, whining and complaining about wrong colored stickers after all. But, but what can I say? This, this would make some sense. This absolutely would. And uh, I think it wouldn't be a terrible idea. Not a terrible idea. So maybe we will see that happen. It is a minor, fiddly, dumb little thing that even if you don't care about F1, I think you would say, yeah, you want the guy who's driving the race car at, you know, 200 miles an hour in the rain. You want him to decide whether or not the conditions are fit for his car. Uh, also, watching some of the video from that race was crazy because the uh, the amount of visibility, it was so terrible because the F1 cars, the way the wheels are kind of set up and the positioning of the car means in the rain, they kick these massive clouds of of water essentially um out the back of the car this this misting that happens and it's like gigantic i mean these big rooster tails essentially of water shooting into the air uh essentially blinding anyone behind you and then you are blinding the guy behind you and then he is blinding the guy behind him um that's super dangerous and one thing i thought was interesting is when you see the safety car driving around in that same amount of rain it doesn't happen because you know it has like fenders and stuff it's a, you know, it's a road car. <laughs> it doesn't happen as much. So there's a, there's a little bit of a distinction there. Now, the good news is uh, last weekend in Japan, some, some good racing still happened. And that, that is a good thing. Uh, here's another clip from that race. It's a 12th win of the season. Meanwhile, Leclerc goes across the rumble strip. Perez tries to get him on the outside of the final corner. Leclerc comes home to take second place ahead of Sergio Perez. They might have a look at that in the stewards room after this race david croft on the call with that and uh, of course in first place was uh max verstappen not much of a surprise there he, he does that sometimes so oh man i know i know f1 could be interesting um and it can also be simultaneously infuriating with all the rules i've i've been a big proponent of grassroots motorsports it's one thing i love so much about the pikes peak international hill climb right here in my backyard if you missed some of my coverage of that. Maybe you're a new listener to the show. I see lots of new listeners jumping on board, and I want to thank you for that as well. But maybe if you're a new listener, go back and check out some of my uh, Pikes Peak Hill Climb coverage live on the streets. Very, very cool stuff there. Now, there's lots more to get to this week, but I'm going to save some cool stuff for uh, next week's show. Uh, BMW, for instance, 
is um, doing something about the grill. And you know what I'm talking about. You know, the big grill. Because because if you've seen it, you can't unsee it. They're doing something about that. And they've also uh, said something that you could consider a win for the manual transmission. So uh, that is... Uh, that is very cool. Now, also, before I wrap the show up, one piece of housekeeping. Uh, I want to give you a heads up that I'm going to be slightly changing the regular posting date of the show. Uh, for the past six months or so, we've been posting uh, the show around uh, on on Mondays for most folks and on Sunday afternoons for Patreon subscribers. Uh, we're going to be bumping that a little bit. We're going to be doing Monday for Patreon uh, early access and Tuesday for uh, regular subscribers of the show. And that's purely to accommodate my work schedule, which has gotten insanely busy these past couple weeks. It bonkers busy. <laughs> so um, that's to accommodate that. Uh, and look on the Automotive ADHD Facebook page coming up soon. I'm going to put a poll up there and ask when you listen to podcasts the most, because we might settle on a different day going forward. And maybe if you listen to podcasts Friday afternoons predominantly, and majority of people do that, we might start posting it then. So I'm going to get your thoughts on that, and uh, we might mix it up again. But for the time being, expect the show Tuesdays for regular subscribers, Monday for Patreon subscribers. And of course, I want to give a huge thank you to the folks on Patreon who make this show a possibility. They really make it work. Also, remember that you can subscribe to the show and give it a rating on Spotify. Six stars. Blow it up. Make them add a whole new star just for this show. Now, I will see you right here, same time, same place, next week.